Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster, and I'm here today with my friend David Kidder. Uh, David is a multi-time founder, uh, most recently founder and CEO of a company called Bionic, which was acquired last year by Accenture and is now called Accenture Song. Uh, David has also written a very large number of books, including uh, a book called The Startup Playbook. We'll talk about that uh, today as well. Uh, David, welcome to The Daily Bolster. It is so great to see you. We always love my time with you and uh, always our, we spent a lot of time together in your, your CEO unformed, which was a great part of my uh, personal growth. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, so so David and I were in a CEO forum together for many years, so five, five to 10 years, somewhere yep. in that range, uh, while you were running Clickable. And um, what I what I love doing with these sort of uh, the in-depth interviews on Fridays uh, is to uh, do arc of career. And I realized today when I was looking at your LinkedIn profile, I actually don't know much about your time before I met you. Uh, so before you started Clickable, which was your third startup or your fourth startup? Uh, this is the third at the time. So uh, prior to that, I had two, uh, one bootstrap, one venture back startup uh, in both in software at the time. So it was a lot of lot of work done getting to Clickable um, and happy to share and jump into anywhere you'd like around those journeys. Yeah. I mean, what? so real quickly, like what were the three, yeah. like, the substance of the business and what were the outcomes of the business? Let's start sure. With. So I had studied uh, industrial design at RIT and I had the good fortune of being um, running into a founder named Bill Gillette who had a company called the Idea Group. And the Idea Group was the beginning really of the internet, 1994. And he was an early adopter and as a result myself of a lot of the silicon graphics technologies that you probably are familiar with, like the web force boxes and, and Razna and Wavefront and Pro Engineer and all these amazing things that created the first Jurassic Park and otherwise. But they got quickly into the whole web serving business. And I we built web authoring tools in a web service company and I was age, I guess, 20, 21. And we built that uh, and we sold that two or three years later um, to a company called Target Vision, who you've never heard of, but they built those closed caption communication systems way back when it went in built big buildings. And today you ride an elevator, you see ads, you see education and big, big companies, you speak big televisions. And they did that type, of, uh, that, type of, that type of communication and they acquired us to be their internet division. And so we built that up and I joined New York and, and did a roll up back by Omnicom with a whole group called Think No Ideas uh, for about two years and then left and started a company called SmartRay. And SmartRay was one of the first uh, pioneers in WAP-based devices, which is the sort of beginning of mobile communication. And so in partnership with Tibco and Sprint and all these uh, web companies or web-based uh, mobile companies, we built SmartRay to be a, basically an alerting company. So you're on your device, you're getting a text uh, to your phone, and uh, you want to know this idea like, you know, knowing what the weather is is helpful. You know, knowing the knowing the value of your flight delay, but a flight delay on a, from an economic perspective is actually the value of a cup of coffee. But if your flight is canceled, it's like worth a hundred times more because you have cars and hotels and things. So message to moment marketing, right, was just beginning. And so we pioneered this. We raised up five million in venture. Um, we actually 
almost sold the company, practically did, to about.com and our friend Scott Kernett and Bill Day. And um, you know, on a, on a purchase point adjustment, ended up having that uh, deal not close. But we had a great banker in Broadview. We ended up being acquired uh, for a little under $40 million, about half the value of the prior deal, uh, by uh, LifeMinders, which was in the email marketing space. And you're probably familiar with that way back when with ReturnPath. And so integrated that and uh, then uh, uh, spent out two years on the road, traveling to about 42 countries on a backpack and learning in my late 20s, uh, having that success behind me. And then, you know, a, a clickable and life and family and kids uh, began a couple of years later. So really wonderful journey uh, when we first met. And and then what was the clickable story? Give the same sort of synopsis of the clickable story. Yeah, you know, it was very similar in the nature of that whole message to moment marketing. So if you, the complexity of managing search and social, which hadn't even really existed at the time, across multiple API meant I had to learn multiple systems. And so the data that you would ingest from Google and Bing and, and Yahoo at the time was uh, fairly archaic and complex to the degree that we basically built a patented idea around this thing called an ACT engine, which would study your data and tell you how you're doing, what you need to improve every day. So it's sort of thematically building on that same thing of SmartRay, which was in the mobile learning space. In this case, it was on the APIs of advertising. So we were making you know the average marketer just better, stronger, and faster, synthesizing and alerting early days of machine learning, quite frankly. And so we, this ACT engine became this beautiful interface, Apple-like simplicity across those um, marketplaces. The challenge was is that we, we did two, two things wrong in that business. One was we built in two marketplaces. We did a huge partnership with a big credit card company to take our platform to their millions of customers who are spending more on that card uh, than any one of their customers on Google, right? And then we were also serving this sort of enterprise marketplaces. So we built this beautiful Siamese twin-headed kid that was serving two problems in the world, which is basically fatal. The second challenge is, is that, um, that we are faced is that our APIs, which were built across those three platforms, Google, Microsoft, and Yahoo, it turned out there was one winner, and it was Google. So you, you consolidating your value that across platform friction began to evaporate because there was one monopoly, quite frankly. And two is we're building two marketplaces. So despite a wonderful culture and amazing people, we ended up having been acquired uh, uh, after about six years and sort of separated that size, Siamese twin-headed kid. We put one half of it to the back to the SMB marketplace, right. and we took the other half to enterprise. Yeah, I mean, look, the role of timing and luck in startups uh, can never be um, understated. And uh, that one strikes me as one, uh, and I remember that because I sort of lived through a lot you of You lived through it, yes. Like, timing and luck had a lot to do with it because, yeah, platforms did consolidate down to Google, but but then but then not afterwards. Yeah, didn't uh, you mention that because there was the other platforms that emerged in the social space. In fact, we had... Uh, a very significant, we had two significant offers, one from the company we partnered with in the, you know, for over hundred million and everything didn't close. And the second one was um, from a big sort of 120 some odd character company that, um, you know, didn't also close. And, you know, you're right. I mean, I remember in writing this startup playbook, which happened thereafter, I asked Reed Hoffman, you know, to what degree would you attribute your success to good fortune and timing and not luck so much, but if luck is for little people, but still good fortune in time. And he said this remarkable thing. He said 80%. 80% of all of our success was being there when, when it happened, which means 
we're the right people, the right intellect, the right capital, right idea, when this outside force changed the way a behavior existed or a new behavior emerged and went mainstream. Not so early we were dead and yep. not so late we lost. And I really transformed the way I thought about predicting the future it was less about being right and about more about being alive. <laughs> yeah, being, being uh, it's Woody Allen, right? 80% of life is showing up. It's actually 80% of life is showing up at the right time. Yes. Um, so one of the things I always have always appreciated about you is that you're a student of the game. Mm. And, um, you know, through all of these startups up through Clickable, you really had an opportunity to be reflective, um, I think, to, to sort of document your own learnings and frameworks about what worked and what didn't work in, in building a startup. You then write the startup playbook um, and write slash curate the startup playbook where you went out and you talked to people like Reed Hoffman, who, who built businesses and kind of distilled more and more and more learnings. Um, before we talk about Bionic and sort of how you applied those learnings in your next job, um, what stands out to you as like a top three things you learned from your own experiences, but also curating those of others? So luck, I mean, maybe fortunate timing as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. Um, and these are, these are just, as you prepared me for this, you know, we wanted to keep this very loose. This is less sort of like some didactic, this is how we, this is the play and this is the part of it, more about what did I expect and who I was becoming is really the question. So one of the traits I, as I look back, this actually came from a very interesting conversation I had with a, a beloved founder, you and I both knew for the founder of Zappos when I was with a couple of years ago and he said, who, a guy, he's a guy who didn't have kids, but he's always fascinated about raising kids and also family and all stuff. And he, I, he asked me what the most important trait of raising my sons. I have three sons, like you have three kids. And I said, you know, grit it was kind of Doc Worth view of the, you know, never give up perseverance sort of thing. He goes, that's funny. His response to this was, that's funny. I would have chosen curious. At the time, I was kind of like, oh, that's a nice quality. It's important quality. But as I've reflected over the years, I think it's actually probably the most important quality. It's because asking the question of why, that relentless why in, in your interior life, in your relationships, and the problems in the world is the atomic value of creating something in yourself, of yourself, but also things in the world. And so curious is probably sort of the central thing I'd say is like, if that doesn't exist in yourself, doesn't exist in your company, you're really not going to have any success. The second thing is that is the expectation that kind of like what I was saying before about you know, good fortune and timing is that most likely you're not going to be successful in the first several goes, right? It just if entrepreneurs, not something you in the middle of your career decide to do in the same way, you know, a, you know, an, a, an entrepreneur doesn't decide to be the surgeon in the middle of their career. It's like, it takes a long time to be a good entrepreneur, uh, to be a good CEO, to be a good leader. Like these are skills to develop challenges, which means is that success is kind of a bad educator. Like you have to accept the fact that you're going to struggle until you learn. So the part of that journey, curiosity being one second one, is to be able to deal with brokenness. You're going to go through brokenness. And in the brokenness comes the learning. And all of, in my view, all of the key learnings. The last part about this is really in the context of brokenness and getting through that, the curiosity piece is, is, there is some things that are really true about creating some things that matter. And so that really leads us to the startup playbook, which is, you know, why did I do that? It was, you know, in the middle of the, uh, the clickable journey. And we have 
lots of good friends who served my board together. We, we, we both love and admire intellectually and personally. And one of them, one of them in particular, um, Albert, in one of my more challenging conversations that he had with me was, I kind of asked him, I was like, how come I didn't know this? Like, how come I, like, how, this is such an obvious thing looking back. Like, why did we do this? And also you're the CEO, so you own it. Like there's no one else. So you have a great board and all their geniuses and their success. But like at the end of the day, you're in the weeds leading and you own the outcome. That buck stops here when you really accept that is so profound. So I decided to go do basically 20 years of learning in one year. And that was really the startup playbook journey was to ask this question of to these fantastic entrepreneurs, of which I believe you're one of them, was how do you bet your life? And if you listen carefully and you're curious, in this case, 300 hours, they effectively all said the same thing over and over and over again, that most ideas pass through these criteria, these journeys in the first three years, where the idea becomes true. It kind of becomes dead to undead through these criteria. And I'm happy to share those. But the reality was, is that these learnings were kind of universal at that time. Of everyone you interviewed for that book, um... Uh, who was kind of like the biggest reach? Like, was it Reed Hoffman or? Well, there's Elon. <laughs> oh, Elon, right. Okay. Elon, Sarah Blakely were both in there. Some pretty, Roddy Brooks. I mean, you're on your Princeton. I mean, just some, there's journey people, like, you know, people you would know who I love and had a lot of success, but also kept going. They just never stopped. And yeah. I consider myself one of those. But, but so Elon's a really interesting one, right? Because this was, this book was way before anything. Right, Way was, before his famous, like yes. Tesla, like Tesla was functioning up and running, yep. but probably no SpaceX and you know none of the other things he's done since then. They were the early stages of this. In fact, I met him through the Founders Fund, and I have a funny story about having to follow him at their investor day through Fund One. He, I literally, he had just launched his first successful rocket. He had a GoPro stuck to it, and then. Um, uh, uh, my, I had to actually literally follow his presentation with Clickable and my little animation after the, after you see this in his forecast of like three and a half billion from NASA, which he did end up doing. So very funny stories. And also one of his best friends and brilliant wild friends is Adair Ressi, who's part of his whole story. They studied physics together at Penn. And then, um, and so I know I've met him many times through that relationship, but he's not a personal friend. I did get a chance to invest in his companies as a result of that. And I'm very grateful for that. But I'll just say, I'll share what he said to me, which was, you know, at the time um, he just said very simply, um, and I won't tell you all the circumstances around by which we were interviewed. It was very amusing. I'll tell you offline. But he just basically said, I can boil this down into a single idea, which is, this is now a famous idea, but back then it was, he goes, wishful thinking is the enemy. And I got to tell you, you know me very well, which is, it took me a long time, you know, on the spectrum of successful entrepreneurs, you know, you don't have a lot of irrational pessimists, and but you also equally don't have as many, um, op, you know, pathological optimists. Right in the middle is a is a rational optimist, which it took me a long time to become that CEO and founder. Clickable brought me there, but because I had such radical optimism and belief that that lesson he told me, which we'll think is the enemy, was like a gestalt moment. It was like this foreground snap, and I suddenly was changed really forever. So I have a lot of gratefulness for that, that book. I learned a ton, but there are some iconic moments like that that really changed me. Yeah, that's a, that is a great quote. That is a truly great quote. I don't remember that from reading the book, but I, I think I, I need to like write that down and post that somewhere. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a, such an incredible <laughs> truth. Yeah. 
Um, all right, so let's talk about Bionic. Uh, so you, student of the game, curate the ideas of, of you know, some tremendous entrepreneurs, um, and you start a company to bring the entrepreneurial spirit to the Fortune 500. I don't know if that was your mission. That's it wasn't. It, it, was, it, was just, right? it was a crazy journey. I mean, it just, I really had didn't have any plan. I think, I, I remember this interview that someone did with like um, Brian, uh, what's his name, the founder with Imagine Entertainment, Brian, uh, um, I'm blank, you know, come back to me, but brilliant guy, Brian Glazier. And he said, he goes, when you really know, when you discover your purpose, the goals really don't matter. Your success is inevitable. There's an inevitability to it. And the concoction of the startup playbook, and while I wasn't sure what it was going to become, there was an inevitability to the journey that this was going to produce an impact in the world. And that impact came through Beth Comstock. And Beth Comstock, who my office is named after, and she, I love her. She was family to me. She uh, was, a, you know, at the time, one of the, you know, most, you know, forward-thinking leaders in the world, still is in a lot of ways. And she invited me to come speak at, at GE's global leadership meeting, which I didn't really understand was such a significant deal until I like, you know, did my research on my way there and flip-flops on stage with an interview with a couple other people. And she asked me at the end of this interview in front of 800 people, she bought 800 bucks. It was crazy. A mountain of books. You know how big that was. Mine were heavy at the time. And he, she said, what are your big questions as a radical outsider to GE? And Jeff Immel, top 10 CEO at the time in the world. Wonderful guy, still is, despite all their challenges. And now looking back, some you know really difficult times. I, I said, Jeff, you know, how many $50 million companies did you launch last year? Totally off the cuff. And and he, I said, this sort of silence. And I said, he, I said, well, I bet the answer is zero. And I said, if that's true, that should just be terrifying. You have 300,000 employees at the time, 90 billion in the bank. How come that doesn't happen all the time? So Beth, in a horrified, quite authentic, horrified view, says to me, tell us how you really feel. And I laugh, and there's like a golf clap and a golf stage. And to his credit, and he deserves a lot of credit, Jeff comes back and he says, gets out of the seat, comes backstage, and he goes, you're going to come fix this. And not not like I'm not, I'm not asking you type thing. He goes yeah. back on stage, and he says, this verbatim line, he goes, that's the most important question in 37 years since Jack Walsh started this conference, and I'm gonna, we're going to blow it up. And he did. And so... A month later, he wrote to all 980,000 shareholders. He's going to base a lot of the way the company thinks on two books. One, the startup playbook, and two, the lean startup. So Eric Reese, and I owe a lot to Eric. So, by, so by the way, just not for nothing, but yesterday, I, so I sort of record these episodes in batch. Yesterday, I recorded with Eric. Good, okay. Eric is utterly brilliant. I mean, Eric is off the hook smart. He's also, he's a Yale guy or Prince guy. One of the two, two that you are close to. So he... Um, he kind of led the way and really pioneered a lot of the sort of early thinking on build, measure, learn for enterprise, the lean for enterprise. But about a year into this, of them, me doing the opening startup playbook growth mindset movement, which we really started, and him doing lean, I realized when I was talking to employees that the employees are saying, we don't have a lean problem. <laughs> it's really leadership. It's really capital allocation. So... I started working, we realized is that the problem was is that these large organizations don't think about growth in the way that growth investors think about growth. They're really the big to bigger. They're efficiency-based, zero-sum, share-based view of the world people where growth investors and growth creators, entrepreneurs and venture investors, 
think through a lens that are based on the total addressable problem in the world. That's really based on the outside in. It's an outside force to meet a need. It's just what we do. The uh, big companies, masters of business administration, are think from an inside out view of the world. And the bridge to create it was really a missing capability that we invented called the growth of us. So I, the thing I've always been fascinated about with big companies, and, and I, I talked to Eric about this um, in, in his recording as well, um, is you know the, the concept of moving the needle on a company with 10 billion in revenue or 100 billion in revenue. Like if you can't create a startup inside that company that has like a clear shot to 100 million in revenue or 250 million in revenue, it's not worth their time in a lot of ways because it's never going to move the needle as much as driving 1% more retention in their core business or 1% more acquisition in their core business. And, and yet, startup people like us think like, oh my God, a hundred million dollar business. Like that's a, that's lightning in a bottle, right? That doesn't happen very often. How do you, how, like, how do you reconcile those two things? And then sort of as a lead in, what is startup OS? Or growth, growth? Yeah, I mean, so here, here's, so there's this myth that large organizations can't do it. And I think that if you, so if you look back, I'll, I'm not going to name the company, one company in particular, which is a very, we, we help really transform, turn around, an iconic company. Um, you went through a massive activist moment and we survived that and being, you know, one of the most successful turnarounds really ever, we were central to. We look back at their last billion dollar revenue company that they built and you would know it by brand. I'm just not going to mention it. But when you look back, it took them 13 years to get that idea from zero to a billion dollars. But when they looked at it really deeply, it actually took them 11 years to go from zero to 100 million and two to a billion. And this is fundamentally a problem, which is it's really zero to 100 million. So the reality is, is that they only tried five times in like 10 years. And when you think about it in that context, and then you start looking at the data that we know, which is this, is that 70% of all the money you make in portfolio returns comes from 7% of capital deployed. So if you look back and you say, well, if you're the CFO, you're saying, well, okay, if that's true, then I want to get through the 93% that's not going to work as fast and cheap as possible, i.e. lean. And I need to have the mindset to say, well, why did we originally invest in the 7% that became the unbatted returns? And there are two investment signals that create all that value. The first is, is conviction. And conviction describes a belief on evidence that doesn't reflect the core data, it's new evidence, that you are right and on time. Outside force, need, proprietary gift. We believe that's becoming true. That's conviction. But the challenge is, is really the second signal, which is when you look back and say, well, why did we invest in the company mail money? It's actually because of an investment that's predominantly based in non-consensus investment criteria. You make all your money from the ideas with the highest disagreement rate which is exactly the opposite of how they deploy capital. So if you can fix that, if you can take leaders and give them growth boards and not committees who can do high conviction, not consensus investing in portfolios that radically increase the volume of bets and failure to get that disruption in the zero to 11 years to create to 100 million, where they build by partner, they know what they're building, they win. And that's what we did. We built a system, I always jokingly say, we built the anti-McKinsey, anti-Six Sigma of our generation. 
It's so interesting. You know, when you talk to people who work at accelerators, um, they will tell you that between one in 50 and one in 100, somewhere in, in the middle, like one in 67, I think was the last number I heard, uh, startups create all the value in the portfolio. So these are the earliest, earliest stage investors, right? <clears throat> it's going to be very different if you're talking about a late stage investor where like no, no investments lose money, some make more than others. But at the earliest, earliest, earliest stage, like one in 67 is a number I've, I've heard quoted a bunch. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I've done, personally, I've done 85 direct investments over the last 15 years. I've been fortunate to have access to a couple that are really outliers, which really aren't even that relevant. The SpaceX, the world, the Palantirs, the Airbnb stripes that really, if you take those out because they're just are so math busting. So if you talk about 80, call it 80 investments. I just this year had my first 100x return. That's not public. So, but it, but it only happened in the last four years. <laughs> so if you look at that's 15 years of lighting your money on fire, getting good at this skill, very, very difficult of capital that are locked up for 15 years of illiquidity before you get good at it to get something you got a chance. So your math is spot on. And is that the same math that the CFO of Boeing is doing or General Electric or General Motors or... Is that the same math? Like they just it, have so the math that they have is uh, is your what well, the element that you're, we are we they are not missing but we are missing startups is the power of acquisition. Mm -hmm. So the re, the reality is is that if a company can discover why us and why now, let's say there's an outside force AI or it's blockchain or it's something that's truly new proprietary gift we need to bring in. And we have a portfolio where we understand that this new need world or need that's shifting is so radical that we have to win it. We must win it. We'll radically increase the volume of bets. So we're not going to make five big bets. We're going to make 50, but we're going to do it across a spectrum of venture bets, partnerships, incubations, accelerations in the core, outside the core, because we're trying to surround the problem. And when along the way, we're going to discover how we will win it. And that's the question, which is, if you have, let's say you take uh, Citigroup, for example, if, what, if they're getting disrupted by, you know, inner country transactions of money, which is a real thing, transfer wire and otherwise, once they discover how to solve that problem and they, they decide they find the company who has a common business model that's winning it, they can move a trillion dollars to that platform. They don't have to wait. So that's how you solve the zero to 100 is, they understand why S and now the missing pieces. They build around it, and then they decide whether they're going to scale themselves organically, or they're going to move the future forward because they're going to take their client or customer base and just move it to that platform. That's the advantage, and we know as founders, like that's real. That's a real thing that it's a proprietary gift we don't have. That's where scale becomes the disruptor. So we solve that. So interesting. So when you and I don't know how much of this is public or you can talk about. Um, when you think about all the mammoth companies that you worked with um, over the years at Bionic and all the businesses you helped them create and launch, is there is there one you can point to that's like the biggest success or the most unexpected success? Yeah. I mean, one that I think is on all those levels is a company called Evergreen that we helped launch with Anheuser-Busch. ABI InBev. And we built this thing with the CEO, the prior CEO and the leadership team called ZX Ventures. And we deployed 
a tremendous amount of capital through it. We launched 143 companies, basically, and not bets, companies. Um, dozen, uh, over a dozen really became significant, especially during the pandemic. But the mindset shift of moving from TAM to TAP, from a total address of marketplace view the world, inside out, share-based view the world, to total address of problems or needs from the outside in, turn, transform them from saying, you know, their global strategy from like two beers a day, let's convince people to drink more beer, to we're actually in the business of enhancing experiences of being together, right? We happen to use beer, but there's a lot of experiences we can enhance by being the enabling force of that. Like, for example, from Tandatap, if you ask the question, what's their proprietary gift? One of them happens to be protein. So they are one of the biggest protein creators in the world because they create more yeast than any company in the world because of fermentation. And, you know, years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, when we first started working with them, they used to dump that, you know, either to a farm for a penny for pound or to as garbage sludge. But if you hired a biotech company to come look at that, and you had a bunch of brilliant PhDs, which they have, and you can extract that protein, it's, you know, dozens of times more powerful than even whey protein. So if you ask, well, where's that proprietary gift valuable? One of these issues of the, of the world we live in is the sustainability of meat. There's just simply not enough meat, sorry, energy in the world to put into the world of beef or pro cattle or, you know, beef or cattle, uh, uh, chickens and pork to be able to supply the demand that is, comes from our lifestyle in the world. In fact, we're, we're predominantly laying the world on fire between methane and that production. I think it's 17 to one pound in, pound out. Well, we're going to live in a, we're going to live in a lab-based meat world. And one of the most complex aspects of that world is the supply chain for the protein that creates that meat, of which this company, AB InBev, has built a company, Evergrain, to solve that problem. And why is that interesting? It's because about 11 months before Wuhan and our life as we know it being disrupted, African swine flu hit China and destroyed 60% of the pro, uh, uh, protein base, pork, 160 million pigs globally buried alive, very sad, it was like going from landline to mobile. Like we're going to live in a lab-based pork world, China is, and the rest of Asia, because there's just not enough energy in. If they bought every pig in the world for the next seven years, it'd be exactly where they are today. So that's about being, quote unquote, right and on time. We were years in the work of solving that complex problem when an outside force happened and changed their reality. So Evergreen is a perfect example of Radical thinking, radical size, but learning is a skill. There's others, but that's my favorite one. That's a that's a tremendous, tremendous story. Yeah, because uh, it's not just right, and you got the timing right. It's that you, it's that you thought it up, or yeah. someone thought it up, right? I mean, it, the uh, uh, yeah. that's that's just fascinating. But so. the lesson is proprietary gift is <laughs> right, and this is a profound, iconic idea, which is when you back up and you say, what exactly is our proprietary gift? Either now or in the foreseeable control the future, how can we build something that's literally an order of magnitude greater than anybody that is impossible to replicate? Or we already have that. How do you unlock that? That's really what the heart of it is. And that's the same for small or big companies. All right. So last question, maybe. Uh, you now find yourself at Accenture. So you spent yes. your whole career in small companies, starting yeah. small companies, running small companies, scaling small companies. The biggest one you've ever scaled was probably still small relative to you know, anything. Oh yeah. They all, we, we all are. Yes. Right. yes. So, so now you find yourself, uh, you know, for a few years shepherding your business, uh, at Accenture, you're probably, a 
I don't know what level you are at Accenture, a VP? I, I'm a managing director managing of the uh, of the, glo- the growth and product innovation group, which is really Accenture's songs growth business. It's now really all the spine and ribs of that was our core business, the growth OS, which has now come together in around that. So it's a, it's a multiple billion dollar company business that I'm sitting sort of evangelizing in and on. And what are you finding now that you're on the inside of a giant, like an iconic American yeah. business? So I'll tell you a couple of things. I mean, first of all, we, the reason why we did that deal, uh, we, we had a number of opportunities to for big, you know, like Microsoft and other companies that were very, you know, attractive. But the reality was, is that our business, its ability to grow in its scale was really limited by the number of access to Fortune 100 to 500 CEOs. And that's something Accenture, you know, dominates in a lot of ways. But it, it wasn't, we're not in the business sort of like the theoretical physics of, of services, we're in the applied physics, right? So that's a really good fit for us because we build things. We're, we're thinking and deploying capital and building things. And Accenture is probably the best in the world, best, especially with when it comes to sort of cloud and technology and otherwise. And then also culturally, you know, the type of company it is, is every, there's a, just a tremendous amount of good people. Like the intentions are always good. You might not like the system. So I'll, the answer to your question really is, was really my closing, my last town hall at the day of the acquisition. And I'll just tell you what I told the team. One was, is embrace the suck. So the idea that a small company doesn't have a suck is just simply not true. It does. So the question is, in your mind, you can overlook it, but it can be 5% or 10% of your job is going to be the labor of building a company on versus in. I said, it's really no different. There might be a little bit more. It's just going to be different. So great Navy SEALs just embrace the suck to get through things. So don't pretend there's not. Just embrace the new one. And that was really, and I'm doing the same thing. So it's a big company. Yeah, okay, fine. It's just different. Let's not pretend it's different. Don't be nostalgic about the crappy parts of your job. Do the, Just embrace the new ones. That's one. Two is is, and having been through, this is my fourth exit uh, to really work, to were more um, sort of asset transactions, um, was surrender. <laughs> is that, you know, if you come to the table with fear of change or nostalgia looking back, you're going to fail. You have to surrender because it is different. That's the whole point. Nostalgia is the enemy. I had this model, this mental model of Bionic called the Timberlake years. And Justin Timberlake, not like unlike not unlike Taylor Swift, these other legendary crackers have incredible chapters where they go from like the Mickey Mouse years to the boy band in sync years to the solo act years to the SNL, the coming of age. And I frame the chapters we're going through in the Timberlake years and or the Swifty years, we're gonna call it, you can pick your actor, because one, the imagery of his life are crazy. They're hilarious, right? You look back and you know, and the secondly is, is that. You really can't leave that chapter until you all agree that those problems that you're looking back on are solved good enough and we're moving forward together. But when we leave that chapter, we're not looking back at those all problems and trying to solve them again or say they were even fun. It's like, you know, looking across the Red Sea and be like, well, it wasn't so bad in Egypt. No, it was really bad. Like we're here for a reason. So I trained the company's mindset for years to, in chapters, moving eccentric song was the SNL years. We were not looking back. The NSYNC years were not great. We had a couple hits. We looked like idiots. The Mickey Mouse, really bad. Couple hits. It's okay. So they surrender, embrace the suck. We're leaving the Timberlake chapter. We are now the SNL coming of age years. 
I love it. That is a great place to end. David, thank you for being here. So many um, great notes that I'm going to take from today. I think my favorite one is wishful thinking is the enemy, <laughs> yes. uh, but there are a bunch of good ones. Thank you so much for joining me. Always grateful, my friend. 